This is Lekker. I'm Lucy Dearlove. Food and digital culture are, I think like they are for many people, so intrinsically linked for me. I can't really imagine navigating my love for food without being able to look recipes up on the internet, watch videos of people cooking salmon a hundred different ways, browsing photos of menus in restaurants and towns I may never visit, tapping through Jonathan Nunn's Instagram stories trying to work out where he's eating this time, rarely with any luck I might add, butting into conversations between people whose names can be found on our kitchen bookshelves. And while this is enthusiastically demonstrated today by Instagrammers and the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen YouTube channel, I suppose the origins date back to the early days of Twitter and back when food blogs were actually a really big thing. Mimi A was one of those who've truly embraced this first giant wave of online food conversations. I started blogging, I started talking about MasterChef because basically I used to watch it and just take the piss out of it. And I think I was just really annoying my husband. And he was like, why don't you just write about it and other people might enjoy it? Because he didn't, he only kind of watched it with one eye. And so he didn't really know what I was on about. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the piss out of it online. And I, I mean, my first blog post was about the 2009 MasterChef final. <laughs> so I think I was in the first wave of bloggers that was sort of taken seriously because I think people had been. I mean, the blogging as a whole, I think, probably starts in the start of 2000, maybe, maybe kind of mid. And so there was people like uh, Simon Majunda, Dos Hermanos. And, you know, he, he's kind of legendary. There was people like Ms. Marmite Lover. You know, these are the people that... They, they, they were the, the forerunners. They, they, they spearheaded the movement. And then there is like this... I guess I call it an intake, which isn't quite fair. But there was a whole bunch of us who were muddling along thinking, oh, I'd quite like to write about what I had for dinner today. You know what I mean? What happened was I think old media was sort of thinking, who are they? Should we should we know about them? Should we worry about them? And we were all just kind of grinning, going, oh, someone sent us some free sausages, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then old media, there was literally a powwow. So what happened was, I think probably about a year or two after I started blogging. And what year was that? About 2010, 2011, I think it might be. A whole bunch of us. So the, the people that were probably the loudest, because... I think Twitter took off at the same time, so there was a bunch of us that just, we had our blogs and then we were talking about it on Twitter, and on Twitter we weren't even necessarily pushing the blog, we were just talking rubbish. And so people started taking notice of this bunch, I would say it was a call probably about 20 to 30 people. Now this 20 to 30 people got invited to a dinner by, I think, I can't, I can't remember if it was the Observer or the Guardian, it's one of the two. And so we were invited to this place, I can't even remember what it was, it was somewhere slightly remote and we were all kind of like <laughs> I think we felt a bit like Hansel and Gretel thinking where are we going is this gonna be fun is there gonna be candy or are we gonna get slaughtered because there was there were all these real writers because I think we very much had the thing that we're not real writers you know we're, we're just people that write about our dinner they were doing things like asking us who do you think's the worst blogger who do you think's the most gossipy blogger seriously like they were trying to get weird intel and I remember thinking, uh-oh, say nothing, plead the faith, you know. Very early on, the stage was set for this kind of weird dichotomy between us and them, so like new media and old media. One of the many ways in which the internet has in some way democratised food is by giving space to those who felt they weren't already represented 
and allowing them to create something of their own. And that's what Mimi's blog did for her. She grew up in Kent and South London with her Burmese parents and spent her childhood eating her mum's amazing home-cooked Burmese food. But not only were many of the dishes completely unknown to her friends and the mainstream food media, her mum actually struggled to even get basic ingredients that formed the backbone of staple dishes she'd grown up eating and making in Burma. And that led to a keenly developed ingenuity when it came to putting certain dishes together, which she's definitely passed on to Mimi, and you'll be hearing more about that later in the episode. Some things were hard to get, but not entirely impossible. There's a wonderful story in Mimi's latest book about how her parents would travel to Port of Tilbury every few months to go aboard a ship manned by Burmese sailors and buy things from them that were otherwise completely unavailable in the UK. Mimi spent many years writing a blog sharing Burmese recipes, uh, as well as many thoughts on MasterChef. But it ended up in being approached to write books. And she's written two cookbooks, the first about noodle dishes in general, but her second, Mandalay, is specifically about Burmese food, as well as being a recipe book. In fact, really a personal catalogue of recipes significant to her and her family. It's also almost a memoir, interspersed throughout with personal essays about her family's food culture. It's also a deeply educational text. I've definitely learnt more about Burmese food and history than I've ever known before just by flicking through it. Mimi actually lives pretty close to me, so I invited myself round to her South London kitchen and she prepared me a Burmese lunch from Mandalay. So I'm going to have to be very, very sad there. I'm going to have to consult my book. See, one of the reasons I wrote my book is, well, allegedly it was meant to be for posterity, but actually it's for my own ailing mind because I can't remember how to make a lot of my dishes. What what I did, even before this was a book, was that I would just make notes on my phone, like the the notes app, and I would always have to go, what happens next? Because I can't really remember. And it's great because I've got like this kind of artefact which now lets me know what I'm to do next? Uh, what do I do? <laughs> this is really embarrassing. No. <laughs> How many recipes are in it? You can't be expected to remember every it's, single there's, one. There's uh, 100, I think. 98, let's think there is exactly. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm making the thing that's about as close to an autumnal dish that I have in my book, basically. <laughs> so, because, I mean... I mean, that murmur is not somewhere that is, um, you know, it, it gets cool. It gets coolish. So my parents go every Christmas and I've been at that time of year. And it, that's probably about as cool as it gets, which means that if you're in Yangon, which is the former capital, you know, you might have to wear a long sleeve top rather than short sleeve. And if you're in Mandalay, which is where um, my dad's family are from, you might actually have to put a cardigan on, you know. <laughs> so that's about as cool as it gets. This is kind of like very much an autumnal thing as far as I'm concerned because it's it's basically a soup noodle and it's got it's got probably a thicker stock or a thicker broth than most of them because a lot of them are kind of quite clear stock. So this is um it's like a coconut milk base and it's called Ono Kasla, which literally means coconut milk noodles. So <laughs> it's the thing about Burmese food is that we kind of vary between calling stuff stuff that doesn't seem to have any kind of bearing on it and stuff that's really mundane like the most mundane thing so like there's another kind of iconic i guess salad which is called shabito which literally means lemon salad <laughs> you can imagine people go hmm, i'm not sure about that but then there is um we have quince in Burma, and the quince in, that we have there is kind of i guess 
I guess because we have it either pickled or you have it kind of raw in a way that you dip it in um, like uh, spices and you eat it like that. So it's very sour. It's not cooked down or anything. And we call that chinsogavi, which means offensively sour fruit. So do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, okay, you're bearing, there's nothing in the middle. Don't strike a happy medium. So yeah, so this is just called coconut milk noodles. And the other thing that's kind of a bit weird about this dish is that in terms of kind of, I guess mainstream Burmese food. It's probably maybe one of the only dishes that we use coconut milk in. And I, I think the reason that is, is because it's a relatively new dish. Um, when I say relatively, I think it's probably like a post-war dish. From what my parents tell me in terms of how it moved up the country, because, you know, we had family that were in Yungo, which is kind of nearish the bottom. Then Mandalay's kind of in the middle of Burma. So it kind of hit the bottom first. I suspect that it's basically a take on laksa. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think it must have come via Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, one of them, basically. But yes, it's, um, it is a very nice and comforting dish because you basically get wheat noodles um, and you douse them in the coconut milk and then you add various garnishes. And so, yeah, it's good. I'm just chopping up chicken. And it's chicken thigh because I don't use breast because I don't like breast. And... Most people I know don't like breast either. I, I've never understood the, the thing for breast. I guess the, the only time I, I, I kind of vaguely understand that you might want breast is if you're battering it as thin as possible and frying it in something. But otherwise, no, it's going to be thigh. What I'm going to do, there's going to be some grinding noises. I'm going to blend up some garlic, ginger, spring onions. Um, I'm going to fry that as a kind of base, I suppose. And then you put in the chicken and you fry that up. And then the kind of the broth gets added at the last minute, really. Um, so there's like a gentle poach at the end, which probably isn't even necessary. I guess it's infusing the chicken with the coconut flavour, right? So, But no, the chicken's actually cooked in advance. The only thing about this is just, it, it is a crowd pleaser, I have to say, because um, there are some <laughs> there are some flavours in Burmese food which can be slightly challenging, um, but I think this one's usually the safe bet for most people. Um, Tell me about the challenging one. Well, you, you know, I mentioned like the lemon salad earlier. That's definitely what's so. What's in the lemon salad? So it's not just lemons, even though it's been named so recently. <laughs> um, so you've got lemons. You've also got raw onions. Again, no, not necessarily a thing that people are, are, are a fan of. And it's also got shrimp paste. You peel the lemon like it's an orange, and then you slice it into rounds. So it kind of looks like you know the is it murakami? Those flowers. So you have these kind of little kind of some uh, lemon flowers in your dish. There's another one which, again, just confuses people, which is it's probably our most famous um, ingredient, I suppose. Um, it's pickled tea. So it's called lapet in Burmese. And, and basically it is tea leaves that have been fermented in the sun for like six weeks in a kind of silos, I think the word is. Um, and what happens is that they kind of break down and they just become kind of... They still taste like tea, you can still taste the tea, but like there's a savouriness and then there's a saltiness because of like various things that you use to help ferment it. Um, and then you mix this with various garnishes and yeah, I, I guess it's kind of, it sounds kind of terrifying again. And then texturally it's also quite interesting because it, although I say it's a salad, because what you are adding to it are things like sesame seeds and um, peanuts and fried garlic chips and you know cabbage and tomato it's it's a very crunchy mouthful and again that's something that people go I'm not sure about this but I don't think there's anyone that's ever tried it that hasn't gone wow I did not think that I would want to eat a tea leaf but that's actually really tasty so how do you eat it 
just this is like a side dish. Um, so the way it was traditionally eaten, so there's kind of like two ways of eating it. There's a young girl style and then there's a mandalay style. Um, and the one that's probably a bit easier is the young girl style. So what you do is you, you get all these various ingredients um, and then you just mix them all together with a dressing. So it's like a lemon and sesame oil dressing. And then what happens is that traditionally it's served at the end of the meal um, in the same way that you might serve, um, I guess, truffles, like petit fours. More often or not, it comes out as when people come around for a visit. So you bring that out and serve tea and biscuits. It's kind of a way of, it's almost a symbolic thing because it's, it, it was used, when there were lots and lots of warring kingdoms in Burma, it was used at the end of wars to show that the two kings had made a truce. So they would sit down and they would pass each other this pickled tea. And there's, um, because we're, we're like a predominantly Buddhist country, um, and what happens is that when boys are a certain age, they have, I guess it's like a bar mitzvah. And when you invite people to that ceremony, traditionally, although I'm not sure anyone actually does this anymore, um, you're meant to go around with like an offering bowl that has this pickled tea in it. And that's the way that you invite your neighbours. So you say, please take a little bit of this pickled tea and please come to my son's kind of, you know, in kind of of passage ceremony. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of woven into our culture in that way as well. Right, just chopping. I don't have any knife skills, by the way. This is probably why I'm, I'm not willing to call myself a chef. Right, I'm going to just fry some onions. You know, I'm really a chef, I don't have nice skills, I'm also quite clumsy. Yeah, this is a podcast you can't see, but I am actually covered in burns. Um, <laughs> because I get massively distracted. Um, and this was even before I had children, so it's gonna... No, it's just even worse. Yeah, it's even worse, much worse. The thing about writing a cookbook is that they ask for, like, two sample chapters, and they ask for, like, the structure, um, but they don't ask you to write the rest of it, which is a good thing. Um, and so they said to me okay we've got your you know we've got your proposal we've got the um the the sample chapters um can you come up with a table of contents and I was like yeah I'll do that for you and then I went through it And, and basically I listed all the stuff that I like to eat um and it took me probably about a week to list everything and there was a lot of consulting with my parents where I was like did I make this up is this a real thing or is this something that we made up you know um and my mum was like yeah no that's real no that's not real yeah you know it's kind of like I mean, in my first book there's actually a dish which I was always convinced was Burmese and when I was writing the book my mum went no I made that up so <laughs> so I actually say that in the introduction I was like I was I, you know, this is a made up recipe but it's good um, do you think there's an expectation from chefs of like, particularly Asian descent that everything has to be quote unquote authentic? Like it's it's expected that it's like come from this like heritage of hundreds of years of kind of yes, I mean yes and no. I mean, so I have a real beef with the word authentic, and I was probably guilty of using it probably until quite recently. Maybe the last year or so, I've completely fallen out of love with it because I think it's used as a stick to beat people on the head. You know, it's like, what does it, what does it mean? Authentic to who? Authentic to what? Because you can't, <laughs> you know, there's always going to be that spaghetti bolognese. That that's one thing. It's not like, oh, maybe there is. Did I make this up? Is there like a version of the recipe that's in a vault somewhere in in some institute in Italy, or did I make that up? But I, I think, 
I think no tomatoes. That's for sure. Well, and and you know how some people use milk, and you know what I mean, and like, and and also spaghetti bolognese isn't even a thing anyway because it's ragu, ragu, you know. So there are always variations. So uh, the way I I've tried to turn it into is basically this is traditional. Now I think traditional is a slightly more innocuous term, and so I'm happy to use it until someone says no. Just stop using that. And what I mean by traditional is. If you went to a restaurant in Burma, a cafe in Burma, a house in Burma, and you said, "I want mohinga," which is our national dish, um, which is like a, it's like a fish and lemongrass soup noodle, you will more or less get the same thing. You know, the odd topping might vary. You know, because garnishes, we love garnishes, and sometimes we kind of take take, <laughs> take the piss a bit. Um, you know, but we always have to have something crunchy, so there'll be a fritter of some sort, um, but it might not necessarily be that same fritter. But more or less, you, you get what you signed up for, right? And so this is what I mean when I say in my book that this is traditional. Um, and like I said, I hope I haven't used the word authentic. There are still dishes in there where it might be difficult to find the main ingredients, so lepet, the pickle tea. But I've also said this is a substitute you can use. And I've tried to do that where I have actually said you really need to use this. So there's another dish in there which is called chimang here. And it is a sour leaf uh, dish. And so the, the leaf that we use is called roselle. And it's not easy to find in this country. I think it's called gongura in South Asian shops. It's from the hibiscus family. And so it's kind of, you can replicate it. So I've said, suggested use a leafy veg and rhubarb because those two flavours kind of make the same kind of texture and flavour. But I couldn't not have that in the book, because it's kind of the main vegetable dish that we have, because it's so, you know, it's everywhere in Burma. So when you have a meal, it's almost always going to be the veggie dish. So had I left that out, it would have been remiss of me, and I would have had, like, you know, points of view letters from people basically saying, why is this not in here? How do you go about working out a substitute for something like that? Did you sort of taste it and think, what are the elements here? Well, a lot of it was just historic because, you know, I'm a second generation immigrant. So it's stuff that my mum has done, stuff that's tried and tested. So there is another dish where you get so round rice noodles are very commonly used in a lot of Burmese dishes. Now you have Vietnamese shops and you have um, other Asian shops. So you can get the Vietnamese noodle, which is similar. You can get um, laksa noodle, which is similar. But my mum used spaghetti. You know, and you know, it, to be honest, the way that she'd cook it would make it so that it wasn't really discernible that it wasn't the thing it was meant to be. Like the the, the shape was right, the texture was right, so the sauce clink, clung, clinged. I can't say it. it what is the past tense of cling, clung? Clung. Yeah. So the sauce clung in the same way. So it worked, and so you weren't going to get too het up about it. And then there are other dishes. So even like the mohenga, which is the national dish. I haven't used the correct ingredients because the correct ingredients is a type of river catfish, which you cannot get in this country. So I just, you know, I use tinned fish. I use tinned mackerel and sardines and it gives the same flavour. And so, you know, you can say to me, you know, that word authentic, it's not authentic. You should be using river catfish. And I'm like, well, I would if I could, but I can't. So I've got spring onions, garlic and ginger in a little mini blender and, you know, if I wanted to wear a hair shirt, I'd be getting it in a vessel of water and pounds and get for about half an hour. But no, I'm going to put it in my tiny mini blender and then get it done really quickly. Um, so I'm just putting a bit of water in this to loosen it. Right, so now I need to add some of the onion from here into it and fix again. 
I need to, ooh. Well, I know. Right, I know what I'm doing. Oh, I need some flour now. <laughs> I said it's not normal flour. It's grand flour. Right, I'm gonna get a jug. <sighs> I'm not gonna pretend I know what I'm doing. And just, so this is basically to thicken the, 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 the broth, the gravy. So it's just ground flour and water, which I'm whisking together. Uh, so that does the same like corn flour or even wheat flour? I think so. I think it makes it a bit nuttier as well because it is ground flour. The flavour, yeah. yeah. Did you cook when you were a kid? No. No. My, my mum is very protective um, of her kitchen. So, um, partly I think because she was overcautious about, in the same way that I am now, unfortunately, about me burning myself and getting stabbed by knives or something like that. And she, she does this thing where, like, when she's chopping things up, she barely looks, she has knife skills. They're not chef's knife skills. They're just kind of like amazing Burmese knife skills, I suppose. So she won't look and she'll just go, and it's fine. And she, she, but she uses things like massive Chinese choppers and cleavers and stuff, you know. And it's like if I tried to do that, I would have no fingers. And I think that's very much why she's always felt like children shouldn't be in the kitchen. And she's, she, she does the same thing now. Actually, her kitchen and her house is even more. There's even more of a boundary because it's set down. The children actually have this physical boundary that if they cross over it, they get <laughs> told off basically. Because of that, I would always be at the kind of the, the doorstep. Of that of the kitchen because they're in the same house that I grew up in, and I would just kind of sit down on the little stool and watch what she was doing. And I did that when I went to Burma. So basically, whenever we went and stayed with my family there, both my family are still there, I would just kind of plonk myself on a little stool and watch what was happening. But actually, the first place I ever cooked was in Burma. It was at my aunt's house because my aunt is very much more laid back than my mum. She can't cook either at all. Um, so she um, she had a cook. And so they um, it's, it's, it's relatively common in the way that in a lot of Asian countries you have like what's called a helper. So you have someone that, you know, is, is like a housekeeper and also does the cooking and that kind of stuff. And so she um, obviously doesn't have that same kind of worry that my mum does because my mum is the cook in her house. So she was like, oh yeah, knock yourself out. So I remember just going to the, the kitchen and they had um, like a, a coal, not, like a, a wood burning stove, but like a, a tabletop wood burning stove, like a small one, which is relatively common in Burma, because the kitchens are at the back of the house and they have like a big opening, so like all the smoke and stuff goes straight out. Um, so we had this thing, and I, I remember just making an omelette for her and going, Yay, someone's letting me cook, because I've always wanted to cook and my mum doesn't let me cook. And then every so often, my mum would let me do something to help her, but it was usually something really kind of small that was completely safe. So it would be kind of like bean sprouts, she'd make me top and tail them, that kind of thing. So I always felt like I was involved, but I wasn't actually getting to do the hands-on stuff. Um, but then basically when I went to university, I got let loose because obviously I had to fend for myself. And so that was the time when I really started cooking. Um, but I would do what I could with what we had, the equipment that I had. And I also had a contraband rice cooker. So <laughs> that was also quite helpful. Um, Hide it for the room inspections. Yeah, literally. Literally. It was like under the bed, covered with some blankets. So, And it's funny, I don't know how... I guess because there were a lot 
of overseas students in my college particularly because it was it was actually in the rules that you can have a rice cooker and I don't know how common they were in those days so but yes I would have a house rice cooker and I would hide it but yeah that, that's where I cook but I, I, I enjoyed cooking so much that when I left we had like a college yearbook and it actually mentions that I cooked a lot even then so it was it was a thing that I did to entertain myself basically so so had you kind of gleaned enough information from watching your mum that you could cook yourselves or were you phoning her up? No, I was mainly, it's mainly from gleaning her. I would do the occasional phone because I'd misremember stuff or like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, mum, I really want to make this, how do you make this? So yeah, sometimes I would be definitely asking from scratch. Um, but most of the time it's just because I'd stalked her for so long and worked out what stuff was. And also I had a, be a much better memory in those days. saying about garnishes so I'm going to make some of the garnishes now. Oh um, yes. So boil the eggs already. Um, I'm now going to slice some shallots and some red onions just because I haven't decided which one's going to look more attractive. <laughs> like I don't, I don't really go in for plating and styling because I'm not very good at it but every so often I will kind of make the vague effort. And I want something to look a bit pinky so these shallots aren't that pink so <laughs> let's see how we go. What we do is we try and slice it about as thinly as you can possibly get mm. so that it's kind of translucent and then we always soak it in water and then the idea is that all like the pungency gets taken away so by the time you eat it you don't have that you just have like a crunch and a bit of the onion flavor yeah yeah um and i kind of in in the book i kind of got a bit carried away and was explaining how you do it as thinly as possible and you hold it up to the light and it's all translucent. And then I realised that this was just insanity because it was going to make all of my recipes just way too long. And so it ended up being just listing the ingredients as slice as thinly as possible, preferably with a mandolin. So it's kind of... <laughs> kind of lose the romance. It does lose the romance, but it gets the idea across right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right, so I've done the, I've done the onions, I've done the lime, but add the coconut milk in a bit, but I've had that relatively near the end because you don't want to stew the hell out of it, basically. Um, you want it to still taste like coconut. Um, oh, I've got to do one more garnish, which is quite an entertaining one. I mean, visually entertaining. It'll cause a bit of a crackle, but <laughs> anyone listening will be like, what did she just do? Um, but other than that, I think we're done and we can eat quite soon. That's the thing, you know in some recipes, when they do do deep frying, you often have a thing where it says, get a cube of bread and throw it in. I don't have bread normally. Where? <laughs> we don't eat a lot of bread in this house, so it's kind of, I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, that is always a bit strange. I guess it's so you don't put your finger in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, because I am, I'm just frying noodles here, I have a noodle to chuck in yeah. to see if it pops up. But otherwise, it is literally just doing this and feeling the heat on my palm. Mm. No, that's not hot enough because it should just be like mm. a cracker. Oh. oh my god! There you go, garnished on. I was not expecting that. <laughs> that's so cool. This is what I mean, it's like broad brackets. Mm. 
Mimi A's book Mandalay, where that recipe is taken from, is published by Bloomsbury Absolute and is available now. You can find the recipe for this dish on the Lekka website as Mimi kindly gave permission for it to be included there. That's at lekkapodcast.com. But you really should go and buy the book so you can make all the other delicious things she talks about. It would make a really great Christmas present. There's also a little bonus bit of the interview going out in written form on the Lekka Tiny Letter. Subscribe if you'd like to read about the secrets of Burmese tofu. tinyletter.com forward slash Lekka. Thank you to Mimi for being such a brilliant guest and for making me such a delicious lunch. And I generally had a really great afternoon hanging out with her. And you can hang out with her digitally and find her on Instagram or Twitter at Mima Lee. That's M-E-E-M-A-L-E-E. And thanks to you for listening. I've got one more episode to come before Christmas and then a brand new series launches in January. I'm working on that at the moment and I'm so excited to share it with you. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review, all the rest of it as it really does help. You can also uh, find the podcast on social media and shout it from the rooftops. You know the drill. It's Lekka Podcast on all. I will see you next time.